but one of the big questions that should be on our mind as we begin this text, and we've gone through some of Acts, um, is how in the world did the church even survive up against the Roman rule of the time? And so as we look here, we're turning to Acts in chapter um, chapter 11 here in verse 19. And we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. We're looking at the church in Antioch. You may have driven by a bunch of churches and maybe have seen some churches are named Antioch. And um, I'm not sure how well they studied this text. Um, I'd be interested in asking some of them how they got the church name Antioch. Uh, But Antioch is something I hope will be remembered as uh, just a a wonderful work of God in the history of the church and the early church. Um, It was one of the three cities that uh, the largest cities as far as centers where uh, influence would have taken place. As you see, uh, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. So Antioch, you sometimes think, is a very small place. But it was a very uh, pivotal, one of the three largest areas. Um, And so it was chosen to be where the gospel would really go out and make a tremendous impact um, culturally at this time in church history. As we begin this text, having that in mind... And having the question in mind, how in the world did the church advance and grow, let alone survive, uh, facing the uh, militant Rome at the time and all the persecution and all that was against it politically and militarily and everything that was up against this small group of believers in comparison with the world. And here they are in the midst of this. Uh, time early and we see them continuing forward and advancing the gospel it's just nothing short of miraculous let's read what god's word says now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over stephen traveled as far as phoenicia and cyprus and antioch speaking the word to no one except jews but there were some of them Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. So we see here, uh, if you would, uh, the kingdom of God expanding. The kingdom of God expanding. And the question, of course, being how up against such powerful governments and such difficult circumstances, did the church survive this, let alone advance in number? And there's a lot of ways you can approach a text like this. 
you can approach it from a man-centered standpoint and look at what did the people do. And there's some truth in that, but I find it much more faithful to what Scripture tells us of a sovereign God to always look at it from a God-centered vantage point. And so the way I want to organize our talk this morning is simply this. It is when we see here what God has done to expand the church, specifically his kingdom throughout the world. We see foremost here his omnipotence is responsible for the church surviving and expanding in the world. And when I interchange the church and the kingdom, it's intentional. Because there is no kingdom of God expanding in the earth without the church of God. And we can try to splice up what is the kingdom of God in many ways in regards to the rule and reign of the Lord. But God has chosen that the church would be that through which the kingdom of God comes and grows and permeates the world. And we see it even to the very day as the church is expanded and grown throughout the world, no matter the circumstances and largely in the most difficult circumstances, we see it growing more prevalently. We see here from the beginning under this idea of God's omnipotence, which means he's all powerful. We see providence and in his providence, there's something called his decree, meaning as a kingly decree, he has ordained all that will come to pass in the world. Including persecution. And then there's another doctrine that falls into place with this, and it's a doctrine under providence called concurrence. And that's basically an idea where God is using second causes, him being the primary and supreme cause of all things, to carry out these things providentially in the world. Many of you men just studied that, so I'm mentioning some of those key terms. You're seeing it come out here. In a plainer way or biblical way, you'll see this doctrine almost mirrored in Joseph's account back in Genesis. Notice you start out here with this persecution and by the end you have a famine. But yet in the midst you have the kingdom of God expanding and thriving and growing. If you remember in that account with Joseph, you found that uh, the lesson of it all was that his brothers had meant evil. It was meant for evil, but God meant it for good. How does that happen? God has decreed all things. God is in his doctrine of providence is bringing about all things good and evil. God is not the author of evil, and therefore he uses second causes to bring about those plans. But to be sure from beginning to end, every event, every occurrence, good and evil that happens on the earth, has been ruled and ordained by God. That's a big doctrine. But it is a doctrine which we find here at the beginning of this account of Antioch and the expansion of the kingdom at this point in church history. Those who were scattered, they were scattered because of the persecution. So God uses the persecution to now spread out the church. And it is a persecution that is specifically related to Stephen the martyr that was back in chapters, uh, specifically chapter 8, if you look there, chapter 7 of Acts. And they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and then we see Antioch. You see this place there, Antioch. And they're speaking the word to no one except the Jews, which should get our attention because we just had this great lesson on the gospel is not just for the Jews in fact, its intention is moving to all nations now because of the new covenant. God's making and building a new temple on earth. And the old covenant is passing away. The new covenant has come in and has been inaugurated by the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here we see somewhat of a contradiction in action by the church. It seems like they're carrying on not knowing what has just happened. 
Or there may be some among them that just don't like the change. They don't like the growth. And that's the case in many places. What happens, the church is growing, and there's oftentimes a large group that may say, hey, we don't like the growth of the body. It, it causes a little bit of trouble. It causes a little bit of problems. And so they say, we're just going to focus on the Jews and stick with that because it's what they know. You see, people are no different, are they? We, we, are, we are creatures of habit. We, uh, we, we refrain from getting into anything that would cause us to lose comfort. And oftentimes it's in those pivotal parts of church history that the rub is found and we see our own nature shown forth here. Now, when we read it on the page, we see how sinful it is that we would simply exclude ourselves to just one group of people when the gospel has been put out to all people. And it's easy to look at them and say, look at them. Well, the question for us is today, look at us. Are we, are we excited about when God grants periods of revival and periods of growth and periods of expansion? In the church throughout the world? Are we excited when God brings to us new people and grows the body? And we have these seasons of growth and every church has them. Does it does it thrill our soul what God's doing? And does it make us want to share with more people or does it cause us to shrink back and go into our comfort? Well, that's one of the things that starts here, but you can be sure of it that 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 human nature, and I would go as far as a sinful aspect of human nature, that desires comfort over obedience, that doesn't even deter. Sometimes we get focused on the persecution, but the persecution was just one of the problems that was up against the growth of the church. The people of the church also posed a great threat in their attitudes towards the growth of the church. And that didn't even stop it because what you read next is it says, but there were some of them. And you always want to be in the some of them category, don't you? You always want to paint yourself in the picture of the some of them category. And some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. This will be no less scandalous. In regards to the gospel, then Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. They're speaking to the Greek speaking Jews. They're speaking to the Gentile influenced ones here. And it says they're preaching the Lord Jesus. So here in God's providence, his omnipotent work is happening to carry on the work past the obstacles of persecution and through them, and past the obstacles of those who love their comfort and place of obedience to take the gospel out to the world. And even still, God is moving some of them to carry this gospel to, to the Greeks. And again, we remember, this is a struggle for Paul even. He continues to want to go to the Jews throughout the book of Acts. He continues, and God uses that to teach us Something We even read about it in Romans, how he, he works out his struggle, showing that it is not as if the word of God has failed to them. All Israel will be saved. And he expresses the picture of the flowering of the gospel from the old to the new, that it was, it was Israel chosen as a people uh, to carry the gospel to the world. And God has not failed in his promise because we see in history it is through the Jews, from the Jews that bring this gospel to the Gentiles that we have even churches today. So this is a struggle. And every time Paul's going that way, he's finding great, greater difficulty than he would if he had gone just to the Gentiles. He was called to them. And yes, the gospel to the Jew first and the Greek in order of that. But it was now here, the times of the Gentiles. And notice that this times of the Gentiles is something in which we live in still, that we are operating within still, because it speaks about that this time of the Gentiles has to be fulfilled, that there are the nations being brought in 
to this. We've been grafted in. If you could picture God the Father taking the, the, the branch and he's grafting it into his body. Uh, he's grafting it into the people of God here. Those are all who are believers that are in the remnant of Israel and that are in the expansion of the kingdom of God we see here um, in the new covenant. So we've been grafted in and God's still grafting in and he'll graft every single one whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world into this kingdom of people. There's no there's no fail in it. And if he grafts you in, if he puts you into this body, he ensures by his spirit your perseverance in this body, but not without means. Not without means. And we know divine means it is the providence and the power of Almighty God. Think about this morning, all the things, if you're a believer today, that could have prevented you from becoming a believer, which oftentimes became the channels through which you did or in spite of. There there are people that are in places that are ungodly, that are in homes that are ungodly. Every obstacle is up against them and they and somehow the gospel gets to them and they believe. It's an amazing miracle. It's providence of God. Um, there are Christians that are in godly homes and and they're faced with all types of of problems and obstacles and and hiccups in life. And yet, yet nothing stops the word of God to reaching their hearts and grasping them. Think about the providence of God in your life, positively and negatively, that he ensures all whom he sent his son to die for will come to him. He sends his spirit to them. He brings them to himself. Uh, It was Jesus who stood there up against the Roman government and Pilate said, didn't you know that I have power to release you? And Jesus said to him, You don't have power unless it's given to you from above. You see, the the power that brings the sinner to Christ, the power that withholds every other power in this life, and that providentially works everything together for the good of his people, is none other than the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe. He is the one who is in control of all events and all things in history, including this one. That's a little bit hard to muster when you think about the fact that there was a man stoned that made for the occasion of this whole event. And that there was persecution of families, men and women, that oftentimes separated from their families, orphaned their kids because of this. Thinking about the depths of this sort of providence, it's not an easy one. Sometimes it's a sad providence. And we want sometimes to be thinking only about the positive providences, but it is also through those evil providences that are taking place through that doctrine of concurrence that God is still working. And the preaching of the Lord Jesus is significant here. They could have been preaching a message of any type, but they are proclaiming the Lord Jesus. And notice there's this statement. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed Turned to the Lord. Now it's significant here that the hand of the Lord is an anthropomorphism for the power of God. It is a way of stating God's power. Speaking of his hand has done this. None other than his hand has brought a great number to believe. And it's no less true today that if one has believed in the Lord... It is the hand of the Lord that has brought that gift of grace through faith to take hold of Christ. The omnipotent power of God through the providences, good and evil, to show that it is not by might, not by power, humanly speaking. But he says, by my spirit that these things take place. And so the hand of the Lord is not just an anthropomorphism for the power of God, but specifically the power of the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity here that is responsible for bringing this about. 
And it is the power of God to take you out of darkness and out of the domain of Satan and to place you in to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the type of power. There's all types of powers in the world. There are those that are said in Deuteronomy 13 to work great miracles and you need to be careful not to listen to them just because they have power. Because if God didn't send them, if they're not doing it according to the word of God, it says don't listen to them. Well, that tells us that there are those who are given certain extents of power. But the mark of why we are to listen to someone and obey the word is to make sure it goes with God's word. You hear that? Do you realize how important that is? Do you see how how easily people can be led astray by seeing someone doing something powerful? Or they say that there's just all this activity here. It must be of God. No, the test is always, is it proclaiming the truth of God's word or not? That's the test. It is not merely if there is numbers and it's not merely if there is some type of a powerful influence. It's not merely that in this time that there were miracles. What is the defining factor is, is it true? And oftentimes will we find that there is a test for all of us whether we're going to follow something just because it looks powerful or are we going to stick with it because it passes the test of the word of God. So this is very important, isn't it? Because it says back in of this time in Matthew 24, the very things that parallel with our account, it speaks about that there will be, there'll be all types of temptations that would take place in this time. It says in verse 9 of 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Let me back up and just start at the top. He sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. See the warning? Well, what kind of things can lead us astray, Jesus? He goes on and he says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Isn't that interesting that that is placed within there? This could lead you astray. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. You see that right at the end of our text. And earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And don't, don't just gloss over that. Birth pains mean there's something being born. It's a positive thing, painful along the way, but something's being brought to being. And they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise. Now we have a true prophet in our text. He says many false prophets are going to arise. So they could lead you astray. It says they would lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased. And how we can feel this even now. These things are first century fulfillment. It doesn't mean though that there's not ongoing fulfillment happening in the world. Nobody can look out at this world and not identify with what's going on here. This stuff has great relevance. If not for anything, this verse. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't that the case? Lawlessness increases. You have have on our news right now that even our own government is not pushing for prosecution of those who are harming the church. It makes the love of many grow cold. 
They start giving up hope in the matter. They start looking at the wrong things. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And I've pled with you that that's talking about the end in Acts, the Roman world, the Eucomeni, which is the stewardship of the Roman world. It doesn't mean that there's not implication and application for the future, but it does mean that what Jesus said here was very specific for these, that they would know what to do. And we know that by the verses that follow when it talks about the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, you're not in Judea. You're not them. This is what they were being told. When this happens, flee to the mountains. They're going to know what it is. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women pregnant in those days, for those nursing infants in those days, it says, pray that your flight may not be winter on the Sabbath. And then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and no and never will be. Now there's encouragement there. Because what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem at that time, it was the worst and most difficult suffering that ever hit this globe or ever will. Many people despair over all that's going on in the world, but they fail to read their Bibles and to understand it in its sense that it is given because largely they're placing what they believe on top of the text and not looking at what the text says and teaches us. There's encouragement there. doesn't mean that things don't get bad and difficult because these words will be of great comfort to us in times of difficulty and pain. And there's always going to be some difficulty and pain in this world as long as there's sin. And there's going to be death all the way then until Jesus returns again. And so this word's going to be alive and relevant for everybody. Doesn't mean there's not an application for it. But it's very vital that we let the word of God speak. And we do not place the system of our inclination over it. It says, And if in those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. That's what we're getting at today. How did the church survive? This is intense suffering. There's no suffering that ever came to this world like this day. And it says that there would not even be a human saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Who's responsible for why the church survived the first century? And who's responsible for how the church will survive the 21st century? And who's responsible for how the church will survive in decades and years and thousands of years if God will it to come? God alone's the reason. His omnipotent power and His providence is the reason. And give man a gospel that doesn't show that he's the one who brings them to life. You will get churches that despair, that look at numbers and his power and don't test things by the word of God, the test of all things. We as Baptists hold to this very thing that it is the authority only for faith and practice. We do not measure things by if the church is bringing in numbers. We do not measure men by if they look powerful. We measure things by the word of God. And that's vital. Because every time we do, we are saying, God, you are omnipotent and your providence reigns. It's vital. It's glorifying to the Lord. For cross, it, it says that there will be those... You could go on and on. And you could look at the Luke passage as well in Luke 21. And you could read these things. But these had specific historical fulfillment that took place in the first century that would go on having lasting encouragement in our lives. But had they not been for this greater cause at that moment, it's the same argument that we get where Paul says that if he did not spare his own son for your sakes, how much more will he give us all things? 
What is he arguing? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If he would put his son on the cross for you and give you the greatest gift of salvation that could ever be given, what reason at all would he not hear your prayer for lesser things if salvation is the greatest thing? Well, you see the greater to lesser here. You see the greatest suffering brought upon this world, destruction of this place, the whole world laying on the sway of the evil one, and the gospel permeates, thrives, and the church grows and expands and fills the Roman kingdom to where one point in Acts it says, these men have come and they've turned the world upside down. That was a great work. That great work argues to us throughout history and all of our children, grandchildren, and great, 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 all the way down that God will keep his word and God will expand his church by his omnipotent hand. By the spirit of God, he will do these things. Now the, I got to figure out where I'm going because I spent a little more time on that. Got a little excited. Let's see what we can do in the next aspects. There's much, much gold here, beloved. Much to be, much to be learned. But the next thing I want you to see, it wasn't just the omnipotent power of God, but also something that God has that ensured this kingdom would expand in the world, not only survive, but expand and that is, you see, that his presence, if you, if you think about the omnipresence of God, how is it that he is going to now um, be on earth while in heaven? How is it that the son is going to be at the right hand of the father and then carry out his work? And Jesus said over and over again that there's an important thing that has to take place. If I don't go to my father, then I can't send my spirit And so through his spirit and also the gifts, if you read Ephesians four, it talks about he gave gifts to men. And there's this idea that the church expanded in the kingdom here through um, this this presence of God on earth here. Um, It's as if Jesus was now in many places because his spirit is working through many people. And that's what we see in. In ver- beginning in verse 22, it says the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, Barnabas, if you remember, is called the son of encouragement or exhortation. Now, I want to just distinguish here. Many times we think of encouragement. We picture in some type of a very effeminate man who's sitting there telling us all nice and sweet things. Because, and that's only because our world's so messed up with what encouragement is. But it's better to look at the fact this man, when we say exhortation, it could be say he's a, he, is, he is a son of preaching, a son of proclamation. He knew how to bring the truth to application in people's lives. He was, he was gifted to show you how to do the word of God, how to obey the Lord. Well, when he gets there, something unique happens. He he shows up at Antioch and he came and it says he saw the grace of God. Isn't that interesting? The, The picture there, he saw the grace of God. He could view it with his eyes as he pictured this. He saw the grace of God. And again, this is oftentimes what is the case is the grace of God, obviously, is that these people believed. These people trusted the Lord. These people were added to the church. These people were baptized in the body. So you have the grace of God seen. And note that if you go back up and look at, you know, some that are saying we're just going to the Jews. These, these that are just as much part of the church wouldn't, wouldn't have been very tickled to see the grace of God. But Barnabas was. Barnabas was glad, it says, at seeing the grace of God. But you see, Again, let us remind ourselves of the sinful human nature, even in the church. Then in immaturity, we can look and say, there's a work going on over here. And we're called to go over there and we look at it. And instead of being glad at seeing the grace of God, we get mad because we see the grace of God there. And we're jealous that it's not maybe happening where we are. He went out to Jerusalem from Jerusalem. You know, wouldn't it be? 
Wouldn't it be to say, why aren't you working here like that more? Well, God chose now. We're going out. We're expanding out. And so Barnabas goes there. And he sees the grace of God and he is glad. He is a gifted man. And we notice that he's called a good man, as you'll see later. And, and, And pause on that. Look at, you know, if we had that today, we... Say, well, he's a good man. Say, well, there's only one that's good. You know, super spiritual among us. There's only one good. It's God. Well, that's true. But there's something about what is said here about Barnabas that teaches us something we ought to be saying about ourselves and about others when we have something that's actually good. And that is we do not refrain to commend when there is goodness in others. Here's a good man. Here's a man full of the Holy Spirit and and we'll get to that in a little bit more, but I want to just mention in the sense of who Barnabas was. He was joyful. He was good. He was full of God's spirit. It could only be exclaimed that, that God had worked in his life so he could see the grace of God because he knew the grace of God in his own life. And he is glad about it. And what does he do? Well, He's demonstrating what it meant that Jesus came and he would be God with us and he would send his spirit to dwell in us. He would fulfill that is because now he has gifted certain men with certain gifts in the church to mediate the presence of God to others. And here he comes and he exhorts them. That's his name, son of exhortation. And what does he exhort them to do? He doesn't look at the Christian life as autopilot. He sees a bunch of people that just believed. Genuine believers, they're justified, but it says here, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, you don't have to exhort somebody to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose if it's not possible to depart from the Lord. That doesn't mean they would lose their salvation. It just means that we've already seen people depart from the Lord. Let's go far as back to David, who was a genuine believer, who departed in a grave way from the Lord in his sin with Bathsheba. Christians can and do depart from the Lord, and the means to keep them from departing, according to the Scripture, is the exhortation through men like Barnabas. That this is a need for God's presence to be with us through the teaching the exhortation to us to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. The first message they heard was persevere. That they must hold to Christ, that they must not leave Christ because it is easy at this point to be led astray. We read that back in Matthew 24, didn't we? It's possible to be led astray, even Even the elect were in potential danger of being led astray. Well, what ensures that we won't be led astray? Being under the word of God. Being under the teaching, being under the exhortation, being told how to apply scripture. And so that's what he does. Now, his gift is limited. He has a great gift, but it's a limited gift. He's not the only man in the body. He is one man, and he is given this unique gift to exhort the body in steadfastness. He's been gifted by God. It's the presence of God in him and through him to the church body. So God has given this gift, and the church is not going to refrain from saying he's a good man. He's a spirit-filled man. They commend him rightly. And it goes on saying, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And as a result of that, even as he's as he's exhorting the body of believers, the kingdom grows in that context. And it says that people were added many a great many people were added to the Lord. You can imagine this is Antioch. So you're talking This is a big area, so you're probably talking a lot of people that are hearing the exhortation to Christians and they become Christians. So you see, God's presence is is overflowing through the ministry of the word to the body. Well, Barnabas, 
Barnabas can be categorized as a number two man. He's being sent by the church from Jerusalem, which blows away the whole idea of Roman Catholicism, who says their center was all up in Rome, and it was with uh, Peter, who there's no proof he ever even went to Rome there. And you have Jerusalem as a center. Peter's going to be in Jerusalem. It came to be called Babylon because how bad it got, and it got destroyed like Babylon. So you have Peter there, you have James there, you have the elders of the church, you have all that going on in Jerusalem. And then, you, so you have James, the brother of Jesus, leading the church. You have another James that's about to be martyred in the next chapter. You have all these things. Jerusalem's the center, and the church in Jerusalem is sending Barnabas to Antioch to see what's going on. And if it's true, and if it's genuine, he finds it is. He exhorts them to persevere, and the church grows even more. But he's kind of a number two man. He's not a main man. He's not portrayed as such in the, in the book of Acts. He understands he's limited. He needs, though he's gifted to be able to help people apply the word, he knows he needs somebody to bring some of the knowledge and the doctrine that undergirds all of that with the application to the table. And so he goes and he gets Saul. And it states there, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Think about what he does. Things are going well. Things are growing. And he leaves. He's like, I got to go get Saul. You see, this this has gotten too big. This has gotten to this point. I I need Saul here now. We need to get get some doctrine laid down. And it's evidenced by the fact that for a whole year, they are both going to team up to make sure this body of people is properly equipped to live in this persecuting world. And they spend a year there together, a whole year, and they met with the church. Notice they met. They gathered with them. They didn't, they didn't say, Paul, send him a letter. Well, he, he could have done that. But no, he needed to be with them. Because for the teachers to be with them, you'd see, you would see and experience the presence of God with the people of God. And that can't be experienced by simply letter. letters are helpful. In our day, correspondence is helpful. Um, The use of different types of media and technology is helpful. But discipleship happens when people are brought together and taught the word face to face. That's the biblical model. There's no substitute for the experience of the presence of God outside of the gathered people of God. There's nothing that can replace that. There's nothing that can take the essential part of that. It is being with God's people under the word of God being proclaimed, not virtually through a screen, but by people gathering. God has chosen to do that. Otherwise, it would have been a lot more convenient to say, hey, Paul, just write down some things. I'll take them back. We'll work this out. No, we need you there. We need you with us. And they gathered together with God's people and taught them for a whole year. And, the, and it's there in Antioch, the disciples. Notice they're called a lot of things. Here are disciples and um, they're called Christians. Now, this word only appears three times in Scripture. And all in derision. Once after this, King Agrippa says, Would you persuade me in so short of a time, Paul? To become a Christian. And then it's spoken of by Peter when he says those suffering, that if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's a good thing. Suffer as a Christian, suffer for the name of Christ. That's a good thing. And here it's used. And some people puzzle over, did they take it on themselves? Was it something that was put on them? Well, it says they were called Christians. And this indicates at least a few things. One, They were viewed as Christ's troops. The the language of what it said Christian here in the Greek goes back to a Latin word that the ending means troops. And so there's places we can read in old writings where, um, where you would see a name of somebody with this ending and it would be so and so's troops. And so this word literally means Christ's troops. 
Christ's soldiers here, which indicates they're not in a physical battle. They're in a spiritual battle. They're in a greater battle. They're up against, and remember the idea of power? There are powers in this world. We wrestle against them still. There are powers and authorities, principalities in the heavenly places. We put on the armor of God to fight against them. Power is not the determining factor of truth. Truth is the determining factor of the, of the goodness or the evil of that power. So you've got to put on the belt of truth. Take up the sword of the spirit. Do it with all prayer. Breastplate of righteousness. Helmet of hope. Those things need to encapsulate your life, not to even mention the, 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 the shoes of the gospel of peace. Well, to be a Christian meant to be part of a great, vast army of people being raised up to go forward offensively by their defense of the gospel. And this is very vital because what we find in the text and what I'm seeing in the text over time is it's not the offense like you see people trying to bring about in our times. There are well-meaning Christians out there that that just seem to want to create a fight. That's not that's not the intent here. This is not what is going on here. You never see that in the Bible. And you. How do you reconcile this? Everywhere we're being called, it says stand firm. Stand firm. Uh, in your faith, the devil flees from you. How do you advance? You do not advance by in your flesh going out there and trying to, if you would, storm the gates of hell. God's the only one capable of doing that. God's, that's his job. The church has been called to stand firm on the gospel. The word of God. Our offense is through a defense of the gospel. I believe that is vital for us right now. Because the same temptation would be to be like Peter, pull our swords and take off the ears. But it doesn't take you long to go out there and look and realize that's what a lot of Christians look like they're trying to do. And I believe the Lord shows us very clearly, as he said to Peter, put it back in its sheath. That's not how this battle is won. This battle is won through standing firm, through persevering, through preaching the word of God. And let me say something about the preaching. Everybody has, in essence, Ability to go proclaim the word to their friends and everyone like that. But here, the specific way the church expands, the kingdom expands, is through men preaching the word. And I'm not making that up. The, the text, if you know, Luke never leaves the women out. He intentionally does here. And he names the word for men that went in the beginning verses as men. Um, speaking of these men that were going out and preaching It's specific word to speak of a gender man with no way to read a woman into it. Some words you can read and say it meant the brothers and sisters, but not this. It speaks specifically of of men that were going forward and proclaiming the word of God. So I think it's important to understand that God is doing this his way. And you could be just in much error to think, uh, to think perhaps that you could go out and you could find some way in order to just change the culture. But you'll notice in a lot of these places that are pretending to change the culture, they're hated by the culture, not because they're preaching Jesus, but because they're jerks about it. And we are called to be like Christ. And if anything, being called a Christian means you looked like him. Again, the test is not even if they were changing it. Even if they had some semblance of power. What is the test? It's truth. 
Are they abiding by this word? Are we abiding by this word? At the end of the day, we have to answer to the Lord, and they do too. And we have the right to say, brothers, this is the way. This is the way. Look at Christ. Follow Christ. Defend the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. There is no change of a society anywhere at any point in history. There certainly won't be one in Rome without one thing. And that is they kept proclaiming Jesus alive. And God blessed that. His presence was with that. He helped men persevere through that. Time would fail me to fully flesh this out. But it's very important in our day. I feel burdened by the fact that we're seeing and being drawn into ways of doing things that aren't of God. And we need to stick to this book and stick to what God says. The better we will be for it. We will make mistakes. Especially as churches grow and things like that, we'll make mistakes. There's no way to where you're not going to you're going to be able to do everything right. But keep coming back to this. Keep putting your mind to this. Keep coming under the word of God. Keep being exhorted in the word of God. Keep making sure you stand firm in the gospel of God. God does the work of advancing his kingdom through the church. And not by arms of flesh. It is by the hand of God. So you want to see the presence of God? You're not going to see the presence of God meted out by us going out and doing what the world does and calling it Christian. It's going to look like Christ, his dying and his rising. It's going to look, it's going to look shameful. They weren't called Christians because it looked powerful to the world. It looked weak and shameful and pitiful to the world. It looked that way. But it was in that that God blessed. In that presence that God blessed. Lastly, I just want to turn your attention briefly to the prophet at the end, Agabus. It is not merely through omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God with his church, but we find here the omniscience. Do you know the kingdom of God advanced in this first century world because the omniscient God would reveal secrets to his church. And at this time, there were prophets. You say, whoa, 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 we're getting into dangerous territory now. Well, here's the thing that can just take care of this all the way is that God built his church on the apostles and the prophets. So do I believe there's prophets today? Yes, false ones. How, do, how am I so confident of that? Because the Lord said that he laid the foundation in Ephesians 4 on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. The foundation's been laid here. And he has spoken to us in his son. So we have something that is even of greater pres- help to preserve us in the omniscience of God. We have the word of God. The whole counsel of God to proclaim and exhort. And so we do not need Agabuses to stand up and tell us there's a famine. We have the word of God. That is God's chosen mean to preserve the church today. However, realize here, Agabus was an essential figure preserving the early church. And he predicted a famine. And notice they don't bat an eye at believing him. He was a credible prophet. And he told them there would be a famine that would be over the whole world. Well, here's again, reinforcing the idea. When he says the whole world, he's talking about the Roman world. He's talking about that there's going to be a famine there. And so how do they respond? Well, again, he's saying, thus says the Holy Spirit. Pretty big deal if you look back Deuteronomy 13 and the test of truth we've been looking at throughout this, that if this doesn't happen, he's not a prophet. Well, he shows up later in Acts. We know he's a prophet. He's going to make another prediction concerning Paul. So what he said here, we know from the book itself happened. But you can also look in history that it happened. There was a famine. And the church in Jerusalem evidently was one that was in great need because they were in a hot area of persecution. Jerusalem is called the place that is called Sodom. It's called Babylon. It's called all these words in the book of Revelation telling us that that place, and it says specifically in Sodom, 
Remember the place where our Lord was crucified. There was a play on words throughout Revelation telling us Jerusalem became like Sodom. Jerusalem became a Babylon. Jerusalem became a place to be destroyed. And he would save his people out of it. How did that even happen? It happened because God raised up prophets in the New Testament church. And they said specifically, here's what's going to happen. Prepare. And they did. Now, don't go write a book out there today. And we have a whole new Y2K something. And we're all going and storing up our shelves. That's not anywhere in this. This in particular set the church in this time to deal with something that they were facing. That's not something we're facing. That's not something we're going up against. And nor are we told to ever look for a prophet to rise among us. We are called to have pastors and teachers among us. That's our time. But here we can thank God the church was preserved through this prophet Agabus. And evidently there were many other prophets and there were prophetesses who had certain rules placed on them. They were always identified with their father. And evidently there were certain rules in the church whereby when they prophesied that there was a certain submission in the church um, to their husbands, not to every man, but to their husbands. So there were rules of all those things. You can work that out, you know, fear and trembling over lunch tables today with your wives, men, and enjoy. I would suggest you don't do that. As we look at this, though, God, just the simplicity of it, God's omniscient, God knows what's to come. God knows the beginning from the end. And he reveals his secrets to those who love him. And he revealed his secrets here. And what did they do? They determined according to every one of their abilities. So they had gifts too. Different levels of gifts. And we read about those in um, Romans 12 in particular. That there were gifts of administration. Gifts of giving. And gifts of teaching. And all these different gifts. Gifts of prophecy. And all these going on in the church. And there were those that were extraordinarily gifted to give. And there were those not so much. But they gave as they had ability. And they sent through Barnabas and Paul. Um, financial means to meet the need to prepare. There wasn't even a need yet to prepare. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem? And all this money shows up. You're like, what's this for? Prophet Agabus said there's going to be a famine. Well, evidently they did good in stewarding it. And they prepared for the future. And God preserved his church. And what an awesome God we have, isn't it? You see, the text here, I believe, is not trying to say, oh, look at what awesome people we have. Or what awesome apostles. Or what awesome prophets. Or what awesome sons of encouragement. No, what this text tells us is we have an awesome God. And he was the God who was all powerful and he was all knowing and, and he's here all present. That's the kind of God that preserved the early church and caused his kingdom to grow. And he's the God we have today. You see, he's the God that causes us to grow spiritually. He's the God that brings people our way. I've heard preachers, I, I listen to usually a few sermons on, on the text and I've heard many preachers that go through and they turn this into some type of evangelism, even reform preachers, and trying to push their people to go out and do more and get more and do all this. But in the same sentence, I hear these men say that have experienced tremendous growth and their churches are busting out of the seams. And they'll say, you know, we haven't done a single evangelistic program or effort. And we have all these people here. We've doubled in size. We've done nothing. And then they turn around and they take this text in the same sentence And they say, now we need to go do more. It totally annihilates the point. The greatness of God is that he blesses and grows his church. And we sit back and the only thing we can say, we didn't do anything to deserve that. Paul and Barnabas are looking and they're seeing the grace of God. If it was something man did, then they'd be able to claim on it. But it wasn't anything man did. It's what God did. And doesn't that motivate you to pray? And doesn't it motivate you to pray in such a way to say to adore your God and to thank God for him and to be glad with Barnabas and say, look at what God has done. And you don't have to go far to do that. If you're a growing believer, you can look at the things he's accomplished in your life and say, thank you, God. I see the grace of God. You look at others that you've seen come into the church and and be changed by the gospel of God. It wasn't anything they did or anything you did. 
And you, you're, you're able to be glad for them. Because you see the grace of God. And yes, it would also ask, encourage us to pray. Lord, help us to see more of that. To seek after more of that kind of thing. To where we're not sitting there looking at ourselves. And we're not sitting there looking at our circumstances. And we're saying we can't do anything because there's a lion out there. But they would say, yes, Lord. We need the teaching of the word to keep us on track. We need the exhortation gifts in the church. We need the preaching gifts in the church. We need to gather together and encourage each other in the church. It's the grace of God we get to see every week. Glory be to you, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one God, three in one. Blessed is he. Let's stand together.